Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This episode of Pardes Live and Miniseries is a personal conversation between Yiska Smith and Rabbi Ariza M. Schwartz. We'd like to thank Rabbi Schwartz and the Society of Independent Spirituality for making this podcast. If you are interested in more digital downloads or other Jewish content, please visit elmod.pardes.org. Yiska, in Rabbi Nachman's teachings, um, and, and the Piazesna, they talk a lot about the importance of having spiritual friendships in the sense of developing and cultivating friendships that you talk about deep spiritual matters. Um, this is in contrast to the normal um, traditional idea that you have a rabbi or you have a, you know, a spiritual master and they are your uh, main relationship about spirituality. So I want to ask you a little bit about why do you think having people who are not your rabbis or teachers, but people who are your friends who are in that sense more of an equal relationship, um, why is that so important for spirituality? Why do we need friends um, and not just teachers? Why do we need friends and not only teachers? Well, a teacher in Hebrew is moreh, from the word lahorot, to show. A friend is chaver, or chaverah from the word to connect, to be bound together. I sense that both are necessary for different reasons. We were created, as God said in Parak Bet in the second chapter in Genesis and Bereshit, it's not good for a person that a person is alone. It's actually, according to Nechama Leibowitz, it's not good for the whole world that a person is alone, not only for the person. So we were created to be social, and we can fulfill that need in many different ways. With siblings, with parents, with children, with teachers, with rabbis, with rabbaniot, rabot, with students. Each one, I believe, I, I sense, because it's a different relation, different type of relationship, fulfills the basic need in a different way. Uh, for example, if I'm hungry, so I could be, I can fulfill the need to eat through eating, let's say, fish, or through eating salad, or through eating meat, or through eating vegan. It's all fulfilling the same need, but it's different ways of fulfilling the need. Having a friend fulfills the need in a way that no other relationship can fulfill. That's why it's called a friendship. It's that type of connection that allows it allows for one to be more naked uh, emotionally, mentally. I, I sense that more the defense or the ego protective coverings, that orla, the foreskin of the heart, it, uh, comes down, it's not as evident with a chaver. And if I can be foolish, if I can be joking, if I can be serious, if I can cry, if I can laugh with another person and feel closer to that person in doing so, that's my friend, not necessarily my teacher or my rav or my rabbah.
what I have found, all that being said, what I've described are sim- it would be similar to primary colors. You have your red, you have your blue. But then there's the mixtures. So I have found in spiritual practice and in spiritual the world of spiritual practice in Judaism, for those who, what's the phrase uh, in English? Birds of a feather flock together. So teachers of mine in spiritual practice start becoming my friends, and my friends start becoming my teachers. But it's not designed to be that way initially. It just happens. But there is a difference. I do, I'm thinking of like two people in particular right now, they are my spiritual, we share spiritual companionship, spiritual friendship, and we are each other's teachers. So Yiska, I mentioned how immersed you are in the Piers Esner Rebbe's writings. He has another book called Esh Kodesh, where he talks a lot about um, kind of a spiritual way of dealing with suffering in a very real way. The reason why it's so real is because he himself is going through such immense suffering in the Holocaust while he's writing and speaking about these ideas. So I want to ask you a little bit about um, why is it, in your opinion, um, so much more powerful when you talk to somebody or get advice from somebody who's been through suffering? Um, what, where does that come from? Because I know you know people will come to you and speak to you and, and, and ask you for advice. I don't think it's just your wisdom that people are moved by, even though you are a very intelligent um, and wise human being. But I do think there is something about your, we trust you. You've been through hell and back, and there's a type of uh, sincerity and um, kind of like you earned your truth. So I want to ask you a little bit about why is it that we're attracted to hearing people talk about um, you know, give us advice when they've gone through such intense suffering? Why is that truth more powerful for us? Hmm. It's a beautiful, beautiful, deep question. And I do agree with you. And I think I sense there's a few variables that are operating together. One is... I don't think people connect naturally as easily intellectually as they do emotionally. The opening of the heart, which when one is sharing one's own stories and one's own history, it opens the heart. As I open my heart, as you open your heart, it has an effect on opening up someone else's heart. Or actually, you don't open the heart, they open their own hearts, but but a person feels more at ease or more safe or more comfortable. Where the intellect, and all the text I teach, is also intellectual. However, if it just stays, as I use that expression, above the neck, I don't believe, I haven't seen, it doesn't mean it can never happen, I'm not convinced, though, I haven't been convinced that it's at least as natural and as organic to create a connection. I don't believe the mind connects with the mind. 
as naturally as the heart connects with the heart. That's one part. I think there's another second part here that's very important. The degree to which one is sharing one's experiences with someone else lends itself to non-judgmentalism. The mind, by definition, when we ate from the Eitzadat, Tovara, it's the tree of knowledge of good and evil, uh, it's referred to in spiritual texts as the Eitzashiput, the tree of judgment. But what we're referring to here is the Eitzachayim, which is the Eitzachavaya, the tree of experience. When we eat and share from the tree of experience, it's not that it's not good, or not that it's not bad, it's out of the misgaret. It's a different context, it's within a different construct. So therefore, it helps a person feel more at ease and more comfortable because there's a lack of judgment. So the person can feel safe, being more vulnerable, being more honest, because they won't be uh, an attack. <laughs> they won't be pushed against the wall, so to speak, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. And I also feel there's a third, there's a third variable. How can I put this? That, you know, there are certain parts of a life experience where I could write about it for pages and pages and pages, and someone can read it and identify with pieces of it. But when they hear me speaking it, and then they're speaking parts of their journey back to me, there really is a, a Kesher. I mentioned it in the first variable, but this is something else what I'm saying here. I begin to actually see me in the other person, and the other person begins to see them in me. It is so deep and it's so miraculous. It really is radically amazing. As Rav Heschel said, this is radical amazement. It's not only that you and I meet, but we actually begin to see each other in each other through the spoken word, through the body language, through the inflection of the voice. The written word is very important. And there's beyond that. So Yiska, I want to ask you a, a personal question about mitzvot. Um, which mitzvah do you feel most connected to? Because in the Kabbalah and in Hasidut, there's this idea that everybody has a certain mitzvah, that their soul, their neshama really feels drawn to. And it's not about insulting other mitzvah, it's just there's something very intimate and personal with that mitzvah. Would you be able to share with us which of all, you know, so many mitzvot in Torah, there's also mitzvot from the Torah, there are rabbinical mitzvot, there are minhagim, we're talking about thousands. Which do you really feel connected to? Ah, yes. Which do I feel, which mitzvah do I feel most connected to? I first learned about that in the book, The Quest for Authenticity, by um, Rav Mikhail Rosen, Zichon Olivracha, discussing the teachings of Rav Simchabunim. He quotes it there that it's from the Baal Shem Tov, who brought down, that's where his source. And when I read that, I asked myself, well, what is the one mitzvah that I really feel a connection to? 
and it's Ahavat Yisrael, Ba'ahavta Lakayacha Kamocha. Yes, it is for so many reasons, for so many reasons. The reason I was unable to fulfill it for so many years and wanting to was I didn't love myself. And I would always learn the 32nd chapter in Tanya, Perak Lamed Bet, where the Bala Tanya talks about how to fulfill this mitzvah. And I never looked into my spiritual mirror of identity. I never, at that, you know, years ago, I really didn't see that I was created in the image of God. Like, I believed logically, intellectually, that I have a soul. Of course I have a soul. However, to love me for that reason, without conditions, like unconditional love, and he, he quotes the term in, in Tanya, Shalotalui B'davar, it's the best of midot, the best of occupations, the best of whatever it is we're cultivating, if it comes from the human creative mind and heart, it could be here today and gone tomorrow. So if I love myself for this accomplishment or achievement, what if it's gone tomorrow? So I don't love myself, and then I project that out to everyone around me. Oh, I love and admire and respect you for the same reason, your achievements, your midot, your refinement. But what happens if, because of life circumstances, that changes? Oh, so I don't love you anymore. Because it's talui v'davar, it's transitory, it's, it's dependent on something in the moment. To begin to love me because of my essence, of who I really, really am. And it's there 24-7, with all the ups and downs, with the, all the making the right decisions, the wrong decisions, the doing teshuvah, not doing teshuvah, here, there. And then to be able to project that out to others and see other people first and foremost as a soul, not as the body. Yes, I physically see, as I'm looking at you, I see with my physical vision, I see the body. But what do I really see? And so that mitzvah was my tikkun. That was my tikkun. So I love honoring it and sharing it with other people as I try to keep fulfilling it. I feel that's part of what Hashem wants of me. What's, I feel called from within to share that mitzvah with other people. Yiska, you have been teaching the P.S. Rebbe's writings uh, for a good amount of time now. And, um, and I feel like as someone who, who also teaches um, the writings of specific people, they really shape your thoughts and you end up emulating them. So I want to ask you about the P.S. Rebbe's approach to education because you educate, you're teaching all the time and you have students in front of you. And the Piers Essner wrote a whole book about education. So I want to quote a passage from the book and then ask your opinion on it and maybe to explain it. Okay, so the Piers Essner writes in Chovot HaTamidim, he says, It is not enough to teach the youth that their obligation is to obey the teacher's voice and nothing more. This alone will not help. Eventually the student will perceive the teacher as an enemy and as a foreign dictator. Instead, the main thing is to plant within the heart of a student the idea that they themselves are the teacher. Can you explain what, what does the P.S.S. Rebbe mean by this, that the student should feel like they are the teacher themselves? Uh, 
I understand that to mean the cultivation of bitachon atzmi, of being able to trust oneself, of being able, I'll quote one of my rabbis here in Yerushalayim, Rav Raz Hartman, who said that each person knows at least one piece of themselves that no one else knows to be absolutely true for themselves. That's the building block of authentic living, of true living, of living where one can teach oneself. If I as an educator can help anybody, a student, a friend, someone on the bus, (laughs) if through our exchanges that person feels more able and really believes that one can go deeper into oneself and discover a piece of themselves that they're absolutely sure about, regardless of what the rest of the world says, because the rest of the world doesn't know about that piece. That's how I understand the PSS teaching here in Chavot HaTalmidim, that every student can become one's own teacher, actually needs to be one's own teacher. As a follow-up question, did you ever have a teacher or a rabbi? You mentioned Rav Raz. Um, can you think of any more that you felt like being in their class gave you this feeling of, as you said, self-confidence, um, that you felt like you could be your own teacher? Yes. And Baruch Hashem, more than one, but my first, who has helped create shifts in my own Jewish journey, my human journey, is Rav James J- Jacobson, myself, for sure, without blisafik. From the very first moment I sat in his class, and he taught, he was my first teacher of the Piyasetzna. He, yes, he, he, he modeled that for all of his students, and continues to model that at his retreats, on his podcasts, with his whole being. He, he really lives with his students. Okay, Yiska, um, I want to ask you a little bit about your journey. And um, from, from not from a historical or biographical, but more from like an inner and spiritual point of view. Um, when you went on your quest for personal meaning and authenticity, um, there was a time period um, where you kind of spent away from the Jewish world and away from you know being religious, in, at least in rituals. Um, and then you had this amazing realization that there was an emptiness to your life without Judaism. Um, I find that fascinating. The reason why I find it fascinating is because you would think that a person would find fulfillment if they found themselves individually, Why? So my, my question to you is, what do you think it was about your quest for individual meaning that felt lacking without the Jewish tradition, without your bayit, um, without this feeling that you're part of this ancient Jewish tradition? Why was individual meaning not enough? I'm not convinced that on my own journey I even sensed individual meaning. I left the Torah way of life 
because I felt there was no place for me in it. I left with a broken heart with my head down because deep inside I believed there had to be. Either that or the whole, our whole history is based on a lie. And I didn't believe that. And I didn't feel that. Yet, in going back to like in 1991, 1992, here in Yerushalayim, I didn't see where there was a place for me. So I exiled myself. Not in the name, though, of self-fulfillment. In the name of, I felt like estranged from my own people, from my own history, also from my own future. And it brought a horrific pain. Because I loved especially the teachings of Hasidut that taught to the soul, that taught to the, to the, to the best part of a person where there's hope. And yet, how that manifests as being part of a community, as being part of a family, as being part of the Jewish Am Yisrael, the Jewish nation, I felt there was no place for that where I could honor my spirituality, honor the Jewish tradition, the Masoret, and be authentic. I never, though, I never left thinking, oh, I'll find fulfillment in another way. I was so broken and so sad and angry and disappointed, I wasn't even thinking of personal fulfillment. It was just, I, I couldn't any longer be present with what I built this whole life on. Well, then let me ask like a follow-up question. You know, you could have p gone and found another tradition and another religion or another spiritual practice that would have, you know, made it much easier for you. And, and you know, all, all of their beliefs would have fit with who you wanted to become and all these new, you know, realizations you had about yourself. Why choose Dafka to come back to this tradition with the uncomfortableness? That's really my question. What is it about the Jewish tradition for you that adds so much to your life? I'm Jewish. <laughs> Everything else is commentary. You know, if at 20, when I first came to Israel and discovered that I have a soul, and I discovered that at the Western Wall in Yerushalayim. So it was, well, clear, I need to explore my Jewish basic history, philosophy, the Bible, the prophets, to learn Hebrew. I don't know what would have happened if I would have gone to India, or if I would have gone to Japan or China, or if I would have gone to uh, be with native indigenous tribes in the southwest of the United States. I don't know. I was ripe, I was vulnerable, and I was seeking. Thank God that I found it in my own tradition. When I left Judaism, I knew deep inside it was only temporary. I needed to figure out how I could do this and also be real. But I never thought when I left, actually when I left, I was so traumatized through various incidences that happened in my life, including um, a divorce, no longer teaching, leaving Israel. There was a lot of trauma. The last thing on my list was, well, maybe I'll go to, I'll go to India. Now, I needed to survive 
and I also was responsible to support my children. However I was living, they were my children. So it wouldn't have even occurred then to explore other spiritual disciplines. And I'll end by saying what I did in the beginning. I'm Jewish. And that calling of my soul to express herself within the Jewish tradition uh, was manifest and clear to me. I just needed to figure out which girsa. Like the, 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 the girsa that I left, the version of Judaism that I left, was not the girsa that I came back to. So Yiska, um, I know we've talked before about your love of this one Rav Kook piece um, in Old Taraya in his Hakdama, an introduction to the Haggadah, where he says that being you know, authentic to yourself and to its own Elohim inside, that's what it really means to be free. But there are other rabbis, like the Rambam, who believed true freedom is being able to shape your life and shape your midot and shape your personality with free will that God gave you. It's this amazing ability. So I want to ask you, which one do you think um, is more true? The ability, um, you know, just to be true to this essential thing that existed inside, is that really what it means to be free? Or is it more, no, I can actually shape my personality and shape my life. Such a wonderful question. And while you asked it as an either or, I will answer it as a gamvagam. I, as you so clearly and correctly mentioned, that teaching from Rav Cook has a lot of resonance with me, with my life, with other people's lives that I'm familiar with. However, Acknowledging, touching, honoring, and being faithful. He uses the word in his Torah, ne'aman, which is very powerful. To really be faithful to that tzalam elokim allows one to then, and I like to use the word reveal. That's a word the Piyasesna uses a lot. So while I understand what you meant by what the Rambam meant, I'd like to substitute... It's not a matter of changing, it's really revealing, which looks like a change. Outwardly to others, it may look like a change, but really what's happening is because one is committed to really being faithful to one's inner core essence, one begins in one's practice and devotion to uncover and peel away and uncover and peel away and the person becomes, can, become more aware of what that essence is. If the essence is the Salam Elohim, it's infinite. So of course, when I touch that, that's the beginning, that's not the end of a life. That's the beginning of a journey. And each day, for example, in my own life, when I wake up, after Moda'ani Lefanacha, I think, and I say to God, I wonder what you're going to help me discover about you inside of me today. I want to ask you just in, in follow-up to that. Um, you once mentioned to me, I don't know if it was to me or it was in the documentary that, that they made about you, um, about the Brit Milah. I saw, I saw it somewhere, this amazing metaphor you brought of how the Brit Milah 
um, of a Jew, they're born in a certain way, um, but that's actually not the ideal way that God wants them to be, because God does want, you know, at least a male child, um, you know, to have this circumcision down on their skin. So in that sense, what you would call revealing externally looks like changing. Um, could you say a little bit about that Brit Milah metaphor that you use a little bit, and how that kind of relates to this topic of, you know, accepting who you are, Kabbalat Atzmi, and then also Gilui um, Atzmi. So what you're referring to uh, is when you heard at, in the documentary there was a piece there that, from a lecture that I gave a few years ago. And as part of that lecture, I quoted, I said, and I was not born a mistake. And that's how the producers or the film writers came up with the title for the documentary, I Was Not Born a Mistake. So how can I answer your question? Tikkun atzmi, to be able to engage, embrace, and look to see what needs to be healed, what needs to be improved, what needs to be worked on, one needs to have kabbalat atzmi. If it comes from self-loathsomeness, if it comes from a lack of self-respect, if it comes from a low self-esteem, one cannot really build a life. I don't see, because I tried, at least for myself, I tried for most of my life coming from that dark, lonely place to be somebody else with good midot, good attributes, behaving nice, really meeting the expectations of my community. All wonderful things. But it didn't come from a place of Kabbalah, that's me. So there was real no tikkun, that's me. Real tikkun, that's me, I believe, I, I, in my experience and what I see with other people, and from what I've learned from like Rav Shigar, and Rav Cook and the Piyasetzna, and, and Nativot Shalom, and Rav Foreman, that the tikkun atzmi that we undertake from free will is based on kabbalat atzmi. Legamri, legamri. And uh, what's interesting too about the brit milah, yes, physically it's reserved for males, but in Sefer Devarim we learn about the other milah of the heart, which is for all of us. And it's the same way Hashem created us with a with a lev, uh, hmm? a, a lev, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Yeah. A, 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 the orla of the lev, I believe it's for survival, and, and we need to, oh, I'm, I just, it escapes me the word I'm looking for. A lev, like sagor, what's wrong with me? And from that we go to a lev nishba, and from that to a lev patuach. That is the spiritual, that's the spiritual milah. And it's a brit milah, because to be in the covenant, to be in relationship with Hashem, demands of us, beckons us, invites us to consider being more vulnerable. Yes. Yiska, in Kabbalah and Hasidut, um, in general, in, in the more orthodox circles, um, there's a very sharp distinction between masculine and feminine 
energies. Um, in Kabbalah, it's often referred to as the Mashpia and the Kabel. But in general, even if you don't use Kabbalistic language, there is that strong distinction in the Orthodox world of this is what males should do, this is what females should do, this is what males are like, this is what females are like. But in the more liberal, um, Western liberal world, there's kind of this de-emphasis um, de today on male and female. Really, they're similar. They might happen to be in different bodies, but really, everybody's really similar. They can do the same types of jobs today. Um, they have the same types of talents, um, which just shows you how these two attitudes are very far away from each other. So I want to ask you, um, what is your opinion on this? Do you feel like there really is a sharp distinction between masculine energies and feminine energies? I'm not even talking about the body right now. I'm talking about it as a spiritual energy. Um, you don't have to go with the Mechabel Mashbia, but whatever you want to say, that there is feminine energies and there are masculine energies, or do you agree more with the more liberal world that um, this distinction is unnecessary? I've been asked this question before, <clears throat> and I feel confident in answering the former. I do believe there are essential differences. I don't know about sharp, but differences. There's a reason why, and I do go to the Kabbalah, you know, the right side, the left side, the chesed, the gevurah. When we're referring to energies, one of the ways that our Creator has manifested us, to us, to understand opposites is through male and female. But we know from when Adam and Eve were created, they were created as one body, as one entity. So yes, physically, males who identify as males predominantly have a male or masculine energy that does not disallow feminine or female energy, likewise with a woman. A woman who identifies as a woman has predominantly female or feminine energies and at the same time can allow for male or masculine. I, uh, I very much honor that. I think there's a lot of beauty in highlighting and honoring what makes us unique. And one way we are unique, not only in the Jewish world, but throughout all of history, one just has to dabble in anthropology and gender is a very important deciding factor on a lot. Maybe too much. Maybe too, because then you begin to have, for example, in a very heavily emphasized patriarchal dominated society, you have misogyny. Where a woman, it, uh, be, being a woman, the men are using it against her. I don't believe ever it was ever designed nor the opposite. I think there's a reaction now against that and it's creating the opposite. The pendulum has swung to the other side. So, quoting the Rambam, as you like to do, I do like the Derech Emsei, that in between, in the middle road, we can reach out to the left, to the right, and honor what makes us similar and what makes us unique. One of the ways that you and I are unique is you have more male or masculine energy than I do, and I have more female or feminine energies than you do. Fine. 
Again, there's no judgment. It's a fact. Or it's an experience. For me, it's also factual. That's my reality. I allow for others to have other opinions. However, blurring the differences, I don't believe is healthy. I don't believe is healthy. It's how to see the differences without that judgment. Like blue eyes and brown eyes. Uh, I have blue eyes, you have, I don't know, brown eyes, hazel eyes? Hazel, hazel green? <laughs> it, would, it would be preposterous for us to imagine a culture where that actually decided a hierarchical way of designing a community. Likewise with gender. I think because gender has been, it's been abused. It's been manipulated. It's been used as a power base. That's what I believe the liberal culture can lend in trying to uh, suggest other ways of looking at gender, where it's not used as a weapon to so people that are in power keep people that are not in power down. I don't believe God ever intended it to be that way. Yes, Guy, I want to ask you uh, about um, a very important theme um, in the Piers Essner writings um, about visualization, about visualizing something that you want to achieve. Um, but I want to make it a very practical visualization for you. Um, I'm going to quote a passage in Sava Zeroz, um, which is a kind of spiritual diary he wrote. Um, and it's about making a goal um, and kind of a New Year's resolution. So he writes, if you want to serve God and to elevate yourself, if you want to make sure that you are not standing in the same place in your 70th year as, it, as in your 13th year, do this. Make for yourself a goal each year. Imagine in your mind, visualize in your mind, whatever your name is, what type of self you want to be in the upcoming year. What will be your achievements, spiritual work, character traits, and general schedule? This imagined self should be a way of measuring yourself. How much is lacking until you reach this imagined self? Will your daily spiritual work and, and self-growth achieve this imagined self for the upcoming year? End quote. So I want to ask you, Yiska, what is your New Year's resolution? In other words, what would you say on a personal level do you think you want to be by the end of the next year? Who, what do I want to be by the end of the next year, this year? Okay, in the most general sense, which is not what the PSS is suggesting, but I'll, I'll be more mufferetted in a minute, I'll be more definitive, but in the general, I want to reveal more of what God wants of me. I want to reveal more of my understanding of why God created me, my basic yud, my purpose. I'm beginning to sense that that finds itself in two major areas. With my family, there's been tremendous tikkun, significant tikkun, and both with sibling, my siblings, with my children, grandchildren, 
and my where I see myself and where I when I medamienet when I visualize me with them, I want to be more with them. I want them to be able to depend on me and feel protected by me and feel secure with me. I want to be the best parent and grandparent and, and sibling that they could all imagine. I, 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 that would be, wow. And, and Hashem is now. I couldn't have said that a year ago because the, the, the reality was not revealed the way it's revealed now. So yes, that would be surely number one, my family, my nuclear family, contributing to its betterment, its health, its well-being. Uh, secondly, in terms of my spiritual uh, purpose to, to help others encounter the divine, I'm putting it out there, I want much larger audiences as, as much as I will always value, I hope to always value, my class, for example, at Pardes in a semester where I have a small group of students and I grow with them, they grow with me, and we have a bond that just becomes more of what it is with sharing text and through the text sharing spiritual practice and contemplative practice, similarly to also in my community in Nachlaot here with various people. I do believe part of what I'm supposed to be doing is really getting out there in the world and sharing this world that is so right now in pain. There's this crisis and it's just growing and growing of people feeling alienated from themselves, feeling disconnected, feeling lonely. I've, I've talked with you about that before. I believe I have a voice that could help these people. And if I need to be before 500 people at a major conference to be able to share that, I used to think if one person in the room can walk out of here moved, I've done my job. No. If 500 out of 500 people can walk out of this room feeling a little bit more hopeful that they can actually have a better life because of one syllable I uttered, that's my goal for this year. Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. If you are interested in more digital downloads or other Jewish content, please visit elmod.pardes.org.